Hello there. Welcome to Nip Talked. It's me, Robert. And the reason for the season, Dom. That's right. And we're here to wrap up season one of Nip Talk. That's right. Whew. Where do you want to start? I <laughs> I think we need to first start at the at just just from the top and just say that wet ass pussy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you're not wrong. Yeah. I mean, wrap that shit up, you know. <laughs> like Margaret Cho, I I couldn't eat all this pussy. I can I get a pussy bag to take this home? Oh my god, I'm done. Okay. So back to our main show. Um where do you want to start with this, Tom? I don't even know where to begin with this. This you, I'm coming off, let me thoughts. let me explain this. That? I'm coming off of a, a a migraine yesterday and recovery today which involved me basically doing the ant- antithesis of recovery which was being active all day today. So I'm in a little bit of a fog and a slight haze right now. But I'm going to be real straightforward with you. This show really flew under my radar at the time of its airing. And I'm still mad at myself for not watching this when it premiered because I feel like this would have been right up my alley. 2002 Dom and 2003 Dom was just starting to get into their discover their own messiness. So I feel like this show would have been probably the, the highlight of my youth. You know what? That's a fair assessment. Um, had I been old enough to watch this when it was airing, I would have for sure done so. Um, but, you know, I think it was probably in 2003 maybe nine years old if not eight that's so yeah this this was kind of something i couldn't have watched but i think we should kind of like preface this with like how we know each other give our give our listeners a little bit about us how about that yeah let's do some backstory let's start from there would you like to go first or should i um sure i'll let you go ahead and start first well uh first of all i am young single ready to mingle all that jazz they them pronouns identify as queer all that nonsense but really and truly i am a product of my environment i'm pop culture nerd from the get-go but more like nuanced pop culture and i think i really want to i think using this podcast as a medium to kind of dive in further to certain things that especially that we've discussed here other podcasts that we're listening to even shows that i just fully missed out on because i have a really bad habit of not watching shows is a pretty good way to start um I am I am very sad to say, and I will repeat this only on this podcast one more time, that my first introduction to Ryan Murphy was not through anything of his more popular works with the homosexuals, but was with Glee. And I am ashamed to admit that. But I will say this as a slight caveat. Glee was fucking wild. Have you actually watched any of Glee, Robert? Because that show is crazy. <laughs> you know, I've seen clips of it now, but it's just like x amount of years of being it over but i remember when it was on i was a 13 year old who 13 to 12 year old actually um who was probably like far too angsty far too like edgy to like get into glee to be frank like i was the type of person where it was like this is just not something that's for me that's that's very fair i will totally admit that i was in that fandom pretty pretty hefty and pretty deep but it was. It's interesting, especially going from that perspective to this perspective, because you can see that Ryan Murphy's storytelling prowess has pretty much kind of maintained its own level of messiness, which works for him. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I'm going to start off with this and say that I'm Robert. I'm 27. I am single. I am ready to mingle as well. 
Uh, I use he, him pronouns, and I'm in the state of California. And we both are. We're West Coast yeah, girls, ladies. We're West Coast girls. That's right. We're two chongas, two cholas, <laughs> if you will. If you uh, would have us. Yeah. So I, be, I think my first introduction to Ryan Murphy proper was running with scissors because at the time I was like a young kid who was watching far too much IFC at the age of like 11 to 13. And I remember just like really wanting to see uh, running with scissors. Cause I saw the trailer for it because there used to be a movie channel that would have like all these trailers for indie movies. And I was like, this is like something that was right up my alley and then went and saw the movie after I saw the trailer. And it was like nothing that the trailer was. And I was just obsessed with the soundtrack because it was probably like one of the best soundtracks to a movie I've ever heard in my life. Um, and I think my first like real proper introduction after that was probably American Horror Story Murder House. Yeah. Mine was season three of American Horror Story. And I really need to go back. And I'm Maybe that'll be another show that we... Maybe we just might bounce around with the future of this show and just bounce back and forth and watch the different seasons of shows. Because I've heard... I've seen only season three of, of American Horror Story really and truly like committed myself to it. And I know that season one and season two are like the like the absolute iconic gems in the crown of American horror story. I think there are others that can be argued, but I, I've heard really good things about season one and two specifically. I mean, here's the thing with me and American horror story. I have watched it from the very beginning of when it first aired until it is currently, uh, which is now I think double feature going on to season 11. Um, I have a lot of love, hate relationship with the show personally. Um, I love seasons one, two um, season three, I think is a hot mess and I know it's a controversial take for gay um, because I love Madison Montgomery. I think she's amazing. Emma Roberts and anything to me is amazing. And I love Gabrielle Sidibe. Um, But I feel like, you know, the, the concept was really, really good. But the execution in terms of writing and what happened, like, as the season progressed was just kind of, like, thrown against the wall. Uh, um, you're not wrong in that opinion. And I fully agree with you because as someone who actually thought the show was going to be really interesting and end in a very creative way... That last half of that season makes no fucking sense whatsoever. Yeah. Uh, season four, I really like Freak Show. I'm really sad that it's her last season with Jessica Lange as a proper like main character. I feel like she would have done a lot more with Hotel, personally, um, which is season five. That's pretty iconic. I feel like it's kind of like the revival of the show. Yeah. Um, Cult was an interesting concept. I really, really love Roanoke. I think Roanoke was probably like my favorite in terms of it actually being horror. Um, I love the 1984 season. It's, you know, iconic up there with me because I love Billy Lord and anything that he does or what she does. And I really, really, really love Screen Queens. So that's also where I kind of love Ryan Murphy. And I've watched Nip Tuck for the first time over the pandemic uh, as I was rewatching a bunch of shows that I couldn't watch because I was too young uh, at the time to watch them. So I watched like Queer Spoke. Yeah, we are. We are two working gals. We both work in finance. Uh, I, at the time, uh, during this pandemic, watched all of like Queer Spoke, all of The L Word, Noah's Ark, uh, then jumped into Nip Tuck and a bunch of other stuff. So that's kind of how we got into the show. And I kept pestering Dom because I needed a co-host for something like this. And I was like, look, I really, really want to do a podcast about the show because I've, you know, talked to death about the L word. And there was a great podcast at the time going on about it. So I was like, okay, well, I'm going to force you to watch all of Nip Tuck with me, Dom. And we're going to do an episode by episode recap because you haven't seen the show. And I have one time through. So let's do this together. 
And truthfully, I don't have any regrets about that, especially at this point, because uh, how do I explain this to the to the audience out there? Truthfully, I have like I said, actually, no, it's really simple. It's really simple in the fact that I have a very difficult time watching television shows, not because I don't enjoy them. I just have a difficult time watching them. I think it might be ADHD, but I have yet to go to the doctor and get that medically diagnosed so that I'm not going to lean on too he- too heavily. However, there are a lot of shows in my, you know, long list of things that I'm now actually in my free time taking the time to watch and to lean into. And, and this is one of them. And to say that I have any regrets about it is like, no, I don't. I'm enjoying this now in a very different way that is fun and it's more in depth and having a co-host specifically someone who's already seen the show and someone who is respectfully equally as interested in having long-form discussions about mixed media like this is really made it 10 times more enjoyable yeah this show on its own is fun but exactly i mean for me like i have been a long time listener of like youtube essays i'm a big fan of Lindsay ellis big fan of rentasmo cat black uh, ContraPoints, you know, uh, Khadija Mimbao. Uh, there's a whole bunch of YouTubers that I think are just fascinating people to like talk about and kind of like, you know, learn a lot for like media consumer criticism. And that's kind of like where I gained a lot of my knowledge about this kind of stuff from and my interest in it in general. And over the pandemic, I also got super into podcasts, uh, as a lot of you will have probably noticed at this point. So I really just wanted to do something that was kind of a foray into doing something this, uh, I guess, large scale with a friend who I feel like is a really good like person to talk about things with because Dom has a lot of opinions. And yeah, and so do I. We have a lot of hot takes. And I feel like out of everybody in my friend group, you're probably the most like consistent in terms of like, yeah, let's do this. Why not? I'm going to take a moment and first of all, say thank you again. But I am going to shout out James Summerton because uh, James Summerton to me, I know a lot of people probably watch their stuff. I do not know what their pronouns are off the top of my head. I apologize. But their channel is probably one of my favorite queer cinema, queer film, queer television analysis channels on YouTube right now. And I would watch anything that that person puts out at this point. James, you have my vote. I would love to support you in your media in any way, shape, or form because you actually do the research. You do the work. They did one specifically on society and queer horror that I am still not fully over because it's one of the few times that I've seen someone really go balls deep on Scream, the original Scream, not the remake, but the original classic Scream and really talk about the queer overlay of that film and how faggoty that movie really really is oh so just gotta shout them out like i think we should do a halloween episode like that why not yeah why not i mean it's our podcast we can talk about other things outside of it but just because the podcast is currently nipped talked doesn't mean that the podcast can't become a surgical dissection of other mixed media like come on girl lean in yeah, I mean, that's pretty much what we both kind of want to do is kind of use some like media criticism on the side. And to be like a television critic or movie critic would be a, you know, a dream of both of ours. And not for uh, nothing, I'm going to say this right now. If you are not watching Our Flag Means Death, like Euphoria on HBO Max is great. Don't get me wrong. I, I haven't seen it. I've heard great things. The girlies, the gays, everybody's living for it. But if you need an absolute just balm of a show that does nothing, that is not really here to say anything, and it's just kind of gay and fun, watch Our Flag Means Death. It's pirates, it's gay, it's got Leslie Jones in it. What more can you ask? Exactly. I mean, I, I really am all about like just finding new things to like 
And I think that we have a really great relationship when it comes to being able to talk about media and representation. Um, and I think we're pretty qualified in being able to like have the criticisms that we do. I think that I would love to talk to you about something recent that I found out, which is like three of my favorite movies by my favorite director of all time on YouTube. And I feel like you would really have a lot to say about all three of these movies. And it would be such a pleasure to talk about these with you, Dom. But let's add get on to the list. Sis. Yeah, we're going to the, the list. list. We're going to move on and get into season one of Nip Tuck because it's, you know, the whole point of the show. Yeah, absolutely. Even though this is kind of turning into the all-around mixed-media podcast, as we can see with this show. I mean, we're probably going to finish Nip Tuck first, because that's our commitment to you as, as our listeners. But I can almost guarantee that once we finish Nip Tuck, we will probably go into some other media that we've discussed. Maybe faster shows, maybe smaller series, things that don't get a lot of attention. I would love to do a United States of Terror one, because that's technically, what, only three seasons? Yeah, I would love to do United States of Terror. I would love to do Dead Like Me, because it's two seasons and then a movie. See, there um, you go. Yeah, things like that. We might we do have, showtime stuff. We have content up the ass waiting for y'all. Exactly. So, Especially if, if, it's, if it's gay, tag us in it. We will definitely take a look at it at least. Yeah, please do. We love that kind of stuff. We want more interaction from y'all. Um, so we're going to go ahead and start with the season one wrap-up. And we're going to begin with our important main characters this season. So let's start from the top and talk about Sean. Ugh, good old Sean. The- I... Go ahead. I'll let you start. I, I The one thing that I think needs to be said is that season one does a really good job of not... And, and maybe we can do this together. I think we should probably lump Sean and Christian kind of together in this conversation a little bit. Because season one does a fairly good job of not making Sean or Christian a main character, so to speak. So you don't really have anyone to focus on. I think Sean has probably some of the most developed character in the sense that you actually see a long form arch of him from season from episode one to episode, I believe it's what, 10 or 12? Episode 13. 13, there we go. It's a weird yeah. number to end on. Yeah. But, um, I feel like Sean is probably one of our more dynamic characters to begin with. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's a really interesting, like, protagonist choice to have such a disgruntled, like, person who's kind of like trying to save their marriage and trying to simultaneously self-destruct because they assumed the worst of their partner having had an affair, but they didn't in reality. So Sean makes some really bad character choices as far as his personal ethics that ends up like damaging his relationship with Julia a lot further in season one than he intended. Um, but I think that Sean is definitely like a character that is going to be worth watching the show for, for you in particular. Yeah. Um, I think that he gets some of the most like interesting character plot points in the series as well. Um, But I don't want to give away too much because of course we're going to be watching the rest of the series. I think Sean right now is kind of in a place where he, like you said, he feels very dynamic respectfully in comparison to other characters that are in the show, because Sean is one of the few that you see actually flex back into old behaviors really, really smoothly. Like he feels very established. Like if this was a character that you were experiencing, even in season two or season three, it would make sense because he falls back into his old old behaviors and he's very stuck to his old habits in a way that I don't think a lot of other shows let characters play like that, but they want them to be moving forward, forward, forward. Sean feels that he's constantly at a point of resistance with everything that's going on around him. He's not entirely sure about Julia going back to school. He's not entirely sure about her giving up the baby. He's not entirely sure about even working with Escobar. He's not 
sure of himself there's so much self-doubt that's really bubbling underneath not below the surface but really underneath his entire character arc that is really fun to watch it just be like a constant fight with this man to get him to do anything it seems well that's the thing i like about sean is that he comes in as a character with really strong convictions with a very like early 2000s mindset of being like kind of conservative um, but not quite like being a Republican, I would say. Like, he's just kind of like, I'm a man with principles. I know what I am. I know what I'm doing. This is what I'm supposed to be doing in my life at the age of 40 and just make things work, you know? But he's yeah. kind of like framed in season one to give him a lot more character depth, give him a lot more situations where it's not so black and white for him to consider other people and to develop empathy. Um, I think the addition of having the affair with Megan really like softens his character. And it gives you a lot more insight to this man being like a person who's just hurting. Yeah. And we will talk about Megan here in a second because that, that particular storyline and the contrast between him and Julia is really, really, really good. Like, holy shit. But moving along for the moment. Yeah. We're going to go on to Christian. Uh, What are your thoughts on Christian, Dom? I, uh, I cannot say this enough. I adore this character so much because I love a character that is very much painted in this villain arc, but is also very much actively hurting as a person. Christian's character is very introduced to us, very much introduced to us in a sense of he's a playboy and he's the badass and he's got money and he's got cars. And it's very much a very thin veneer to hide what's actually going on with him. He knows he's not that talented as Sean, as we learned throughout the first season. He know We learned that he's been abused and that he's been hurt and that he's using sex and like things that we present as masculine and as strong as a really as a shield for his own insecurity, as his own damaged past, which, I mean, let's be frank, who doesn't have something in their past that was very jarring to them, that was traumatizing or, or hurtful that someone has said or someone has done that you try and mask in certain ways or, or hide or protect yourself from. And I think that Christian's arch throughout the series is so fascinating to me. Like he's, he's dynamic. He's, he's dynamic like Sean is, but in a completely different sense where it feels like Christian wants to change where Sean is resistant to it. Christian really wants to change and be um, malleable in his own life, but he feels afraid of it. Like he's afraid that if he's too malleable or he's too willing to give up these certain things that he's somehow giving up a a part of himself. And again, we're going to get into this too. We do get a sense of that from his relationship or building relationship with Gina, which is, again, I'm very excited to see how that's going to go. Yeah, and I feel like, for me, you took the words out of my mouth when it's a playboy with a heart of gold, like, as far as it goes with Christian. I think that, in terms of TV at the time, there really weren't too many characters with his exact, like, distinctive, like, anti-hero, anti-villain kind of, like, energy. Um, Again, I mentioned a lot of Brian Kenny, but also Jenny Schechter from The L Word. I feel like they're all three cut from the same cloth of, like, a queer creator creating a character who is deeply deeply flawed and they present themselves to be a lot more vindictive and cruel um than their heart really is and they also all three share rape as a tragic backstory and i hate to say that um but i think that christian is in season one somebody who 
is actively trying to be the person that Sean is. And he sees himself wanting to be a family man and to be a better person, uh, to be more talented, to take his career more seriously, to be more driven. Um, I think that Christian is somebody who at the end of the day is a hurt boy and really wants to have love and to have family. And he's filling everything in his life with sex to, kind of you know compensate for the fact that he doesn't have those things at this age he's kind of stunted and living in the peter pan gay man syndrome which we all know and that will be mentioned by another character in a different season but you know i think that christian overall is a very very complex character he's very uh you know polarizing in terms of like his portrayal by Julian McMahon. I think that he does a fantastic job with the character in particular with the character choices he makes. Ryan Murphy really, really put in craft and concerned with how he was going to move this character along in the plot point. I think his little nuances is what makes it more interesting too, is because his Christian's not to, not to beat a dead horse, but Christian's entire setup. And like you said, Julian McMahon's, portrayal of him is really actually kind of a nuanced portrayal it's not yeah there are moments of loud and there are moments of aggression and even of hurt that we kind of get these big explosions of emotion from him which are great but there are also little tiny moments where you see his vulnerability kind of peek out through his acting and through the 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 gentleness of a move here or or a costume change or things like this and it's like Maybe I don't know. Maybe I'm just a simp for this guy at this point, but he genuinely is one of my favorite characters of this show right now, and I really cannot believe I'm saying that somehow. Well, here's the thing. Christian is one of the characters that you're going to love to hate, and you're going to root for him to succeed, but he'll inevitably kind of choose a lot of his own downfalls. Yeah. And that's, you know, kind of the essence of being a Byronic hero. Um, and I think that, you know, Brian Murphy is not a dummy. He knew that this character would be wildly successful and he chose a really good person to play Christian because I don't think that there's a lot of actors who could, you know, carry the charisma that Julian does. And again, this character was intended to be a, a Latin doctor that, you know, we joke about uh, Ryan Murphy actually choosing Mario Lopez for this role. Oh but I don't know if Mario actually has the range to pull off uh, Christian the way that, you know, Julian does. I will probably talk a little bit about potential recastings for this. I don't have an entire list in front of me of people, but I will agree and then yet also disagree simply because I haven't seen Mario Lopez in enough acting and enough roles to make an actual sound judgment. But at the same time, I genuinely believe that you're right, that he would not be good for this role. I don't think he would play it well. I think he would play it, but I think it would be something that they would have to write around his limitations to get those little nuances of detail. Not to say Mario Lopez is a bad actor. It's just to say that currently as it stands, I don't got enough information to make a judgment on this man. Exactly. And I know that like we're now in a day and age where we talk about like casting with more diversity and inclusion. Um, And I think that's something worth meriting, you know, its own discussion as well, because there's plenty of other actors who could have done yeah. a role with like more acting experience like in terms of like black actors asian actors uh latin descent actors uh, there's plenty of people that could have played a very good complex role like christian but i think that ryan murphy put in a lot of consideration when choosing julian and that's why he rewrote the character 
because I mean, just look at him. He's he's so nice on the eyes. But well, that, that's that's our own particular bias. And and I think the thing is, is that we even we as content creators are very aware of. And like you said, we can have a further discussion maybe later in this episode. Is that we are actively aware that this show is incredibly white at this point in time. We're aware of yes. that. It's not something that we're just ignoring. We're aware of it, but it feels pointless to talk about inclusivity and di- and diversity in a show that number one has already been made and number two was relatively successful on its own and it wasn't a question of diversity if they were to remake this show i would kill to see a more multi-ethnic cast it would it would fucking it would take the show from good to great in my opinion like it's great as it is but it would just really put it up there and like you have a multi-ethnic cast. You have a really great writing crew on this. You have representation for underrepresented groups. Like, okay, you're hitting all the check boxes. Now yeah. you're a, an amazing show. But again, 2002, we got to make some caveats here, folks. Yeah. And in season one, I do have to say it is a very like white cast, uh, but we do get a lot more like inclusivity in terms of like our guest actors, our, our actors playing patients, our actors who are going to be joining the main cast. Um, and I think that's going to be a lot more fun because Ryan Murphy was again ahead of the game on this portion when it comes to inclusivity and diversity when it comes to casting his patients and actors overall. So we have a yeah. lot to look forward to in that. Um, in particular in season two, we're going to get a lot more people who are interesting, uh, people of color and a lot more actors who wouldn't get work otherwise on cable network TV. Let's make a point about that in 2003. Yay. So that is something to look forward to. Uh, moving on from Christian, we are going to go to Julia. Uh, I'm going to say this again. Jolie Richardson needs to be in more everything. I've never seen an act. I've only seen a handful of actresses specifically really meld themselves into this, into a role and lean hard in. And I'm not talking Meryl Streep. I'm not talking even Jessica Lange. I'm not talking any of the other fucking white actresses. I'm sorry, I'm not. I'm talking about her. Julie Richardson really was written and made to play Julia. Because Julia's character functions on such a level of of particularities and, again, nuance of her accepting the fact that you're... Most women, hell, even some men, some non-binary individuals also go through this. You get married at a young age, you're in a relationship, you have kids... And then you wake up one day and you're like, I haven't done a fucking thing with my life. I'm yeah. like stuck and it sucks. And I'm not mad even at my husband or my spouse or whoever I'm with. I'm not mad at my kids. I'm not mad at my house. I'm mad at myself. I'm mad at myself for just not taking the opportunity to just fucking try. And I think that's one of the things is that Julie Richardson portrays Julia as not necessarily damaged, but hurt. And there's a huge difference. I think that, yeah, Julia is, again, one of the more interesting female characters in 2003. Um, I don't think that there was a lot of discussion among like women being dissatisfied. And I brought that up previously in our other episodes. But Jolie really does breathe life into this role in the same way that Dylan does, too, because Ryan Murphy had nobody else like in mind to play these two actors in particular. Yeah. So he really, really, really pushed for Dylan Walsh and Dylan Walsh was more than happy to accept this role. And Jolie, I know, is like a fantastic actress. We all have eyes. We can see it. Like she comes from an acting family, uh, Vanessa Redgraves and her sister, Natasha Richardson, um, rest in peace. But Jolie like really did take 
a good amount of like consideration when playing the nuances of this character uh talking about like you know the storylines that she's given in season one are not really giving her her fullest potential but it's good to see a woman who is you know a little bit more established as a a woman who is unsatisfied in this family life and it's a bit more feminist to see her like pursue her career going back and pursuing her education talking about abortion uh i really love the idea of jolie like you know where she's going to go with the rest of the series because i know where it's going to go for her and i think that she does a really really consistent job all the way through and again i would love to see her cast in more things too um i think that she's a really really undervalued actress uh in terms of like the big hollywood machine but she also did make some concessions to tend to her daughter at the time um, when she will exit the show at some point. So we really do understand and empathize with you, Jolie, and we're glad that your daughter is doing a lot better in her personal health. Um, I think the last thing that I had personally seen Jolie in was probably Red Sparrow, where she plays Jennifer Lawrence's mother. Um, And probably before that, the girl with the dragon tattoo, where she does get a really big character role. Um, That's a David Fincher Americanized version of the girl with the dragon tattoo. By the way, but yeah, but again, this woman Jolie eats the fucking scenes up when she's given the opportunity to really flex her range. And oh, honey, she has the range. She she really does throughout this entire first season. When she's given these really tangible emotional moments, you really get to see this character be like, "Yeah, I am unhappy. I am unhappy about this particular reason," and and you can feel it flow through her and really dive into it and be like and and the thing is that I like and this may be the writer's twist as well as them working with her maybe she's again she's not mad at the external sources except for Sean she's not actually like you she doesn't vocalize the fact that she's dissatisfied she doesn't sit there and be like I hate this I hate this fucking house like you know how other shows will have a character very much actively tell us what they're mad about they have her actively show it through her actions, through her choices, through how she navigates certain conversations with her family. I really actually like the dynamic with one of our other characters that is upcoming right now, which is Matt. I love the fact that she herself is trying to reconcile the fact that she knows she should talk to Matt about this, that Matt is old enough to understand what is kind of going on between her and Sean. But she's so stuck in this mentality of like, I have to be your parent and I have to protect you from certain things, but I also need someone to fucking talk to that understands where I'm coming from. And it is so fascinating to watch the little machinations of Julie Richardson navigate that on screen where it's like, do I tell him? No, I don't. I can't tell him. I got to back away. And then just snap into being mom again. It's so fucking good. It really is. And I love for the fact that like, at the time, Jolie and uh, John Hensley ended up being in a relationship, I think because of season one. So that's a really fun thing to see them be like mother and son. I mean, um, whatever floats your boats, folks. Exactly. So here we are going into Matt. Let's just go into him since we're already on the subject. I think that John Hensley is unintentionally a queer icon and was a lot of gay boys in the early 2000s sexual awakening for whatever reason and it's kind of funny because if you look at him now in like a 2022 like perspective like he's very offset pretty where it's like his features are really interesting he photographs really interesting 
I don't know how he would look in person, but the way that he translates to the camera is a really like fun and like it makes you want to look at him longer type of beauty, you know? And I think that he carries the role of Matt like spectacularly. Like this is a young man who is kind of like coming up on what to do with his sexuality when it comes to his body, uh, how to please his girlfriend, um, then leaves, you know, into a much, much more complicated situation where he's now dealing with doing a crime of hurting somebody else. It's going to be a fun place to see where he goes in season two and season three, I feel like, um, because you have no idea what's going to happen with him. No, and, I don't. And I'm excited yeah. to see what's going to happen. Oh, God. Matt is going to be a big player in season two. I, so. I, I have to say that Matt is one of the few... Matt is one of the few times that I, I feel like an actor playing a teenager on television actually understood a little bit more about what it was like to be a teenager. Where it wasn't like... Nobody has a fucking endless closet like they like to show on other shows. Nobody is perfect in every social interaction. For the lack of a better one, no one is also doing fucking coke and heroin on their weekends like Euphoria likes to portray. Not all the time. Matt is kind of one of the few instances where you get like a really basic introduction to the character. And yeah, sure, it does turn kind of wild and crazy as the season, especially as season one progresses. But you still get the sense from John Hensley's entire performance that Matt really is kind of a fuck up. And in yeah. the best way possible. That's the thing that's going to be fun for him is that he's going to just be a character that, you know, you're never going to really be certain about how you feel about him. You want him to do well. And he does have like these moments where he's soft. But again, like I told you, um, kind of like early on, Matt will just become a full-blown monster. And it's going to be an interesting uh, character examination of a person who kind of decays in their like moral infrastructure because he starts off so innocent and so loving and so like astutely wise beyond his years in season one he's even a little bit doting too yeah because he's constantly looking out for julia he's constantly looking out for his mother and he's aware of the relationship with his dad and i think that this is me like total speculation right here i think the same energy translates to maybe he would be like protective of annie if they were given more screen time together like he would have been that doting older brother that's really protective of her but we don't get that, unfortunately. But just from the characterization that we kind of get, there's, there is a sense that Matt is inherently a good person. He just doesn't know what the fuck he's doing because he's really and truly, as far as you can see in the show, he's had no guidance, really. Yeah, and that's the thing, is that his parents are really like caught up in their own world and they're not paying attention to him. Yeah. And the, the choices that he's made, because they really didn't even notice the fact that like he started visiting... Like, Kara, outside the fact that, like, Matt, this is a school, like, colleague of yours. And it just... Look deeper into, like, the things that are boiling right below the surface. And, like, his strife with Vanessa, for example. And I think Vanessa wonderfully portrayed, like, three-episode arc character um, by the lovely Kate Mara. And, you know, he actively chooses to be cruel to her because she isn't interested in him. And that's the thing that's kind of sad. And it gives Matt so much more character dimension so early on. And it's just going to be fun to see him grow from a teenager to a young man in the series. And again, we're going to touch on this real quick is that I do think that John Hensley has to be aware of the fact that he was a lot of queer people's gay awakenings. And 
you do have a fan base. There's a fan base out there for you, John. You do photograph very well. To me in particular, you are still attractive. You have never faded from my mind in some instances. Because I do remember watching the show and being like, hey, he's attractive. Let's see what's going on here. But I think that we really need to acknowledge how much how much the the gays need to come back to this show. The gays really need to come back and watch it talk one more time. It feels like it would work so well today to just be this low frequency trash show where it's like it's not trying to say anything. It's really not trying to do anything. Just fucking watch the show and enjoy it, you know? Like Exactly. Especially since we're in an early two thousands Renaissance right now. The revival that's coming back. And I think that, you know, John Hensley again does have this huge secret like queer fan base. And I'm sure that he has to be aware of it at this point. He has to be at this point. Yeah. Like and it's he is a very, very beautiful man. I'm gonna put that out there too. We both agree with that. Um but we I would love to see him do more. I would love to see him actively do more in the roles that he's gonna be offered in life and et cetera. This show don't think needs he, a reunion. Yeah, I don't think he's really done a, t- a whole lot, to be honest. I don't have his IMDb pulled up in front of me, so I'm sorry, guys. But I, the only other movie that I think that I can bring even remotely him being in is Teeth. That movie about Vangina Dentata. Okay, but that movie was a mood, and we need to address that. Yes, that's the only role that I can say that I've seen John Hensley outside of this uh, TV show. Uh, apparently, he's done... He's been kind of all over the place, but nothing in a long-term role. So he's played, he's been on like Longmire. He was in Sons of Anarchy. He was on The Good Doctor just like last year. And he's apparently on or was on NCIS for a hot minute. So he's still relatively active. It's just that he hasn't done stuff. Give our boy Johnny some work, okay? Uh, Moving on to Liz. Yeah, absolutely. Let's talk about Liz for a second. Truthfully, I think that Liz is one of the best representations of LGBT folks um, in the early 2000s possible. I think that her character in season one is not nearly developed enough as to where I would like it to be, but that's okay because we're going to get so much more of her throughout the series, and I will put it out there now. Liz is my favorite character, hands down. Of the series. Liz is going to be the best character in my eyes all the way through. I, I, I don't, I agree with you fully. I agree with you on this a thousand percent because she's just so fucking fun. Yeah. We just need more background characters like this where they're constantly fun. And Roma Mafia does such an excellent job of playing this early 2000s feminist lesbian who is just ready to fight these boys at every turn every turn and i love that yeah and roma mafia again is somebody who's like a very interesting person to look at in the early 2000s because you don't see a lot of like really ethnically italian people on 2000s tv oh no um so shout out to lady gaga for having that oh my god but no i just want to say this right now roma mafia is a very very like established actress uh, she's very seasoned, and prior to her being in Nip Talk, like I think that she had a lot more like characters, quote unquote, where she just would kind of do like one spot appearances here and there on TV shows. So she wasn't like a stranger to the game. But I really, really love her in this role. I think that she brings something that is so needed as far as like comedic timing, character depth, uh, being the heart of the series, and that's what Ryan Murphy did intend for her to be although that valerie 
Cruz was supposed to be the conscience, I feel like, but he will try and refute that and say that, no, Liz was always the person who was intended to be the conscience of the office, but... Yeah, but we're, we'll give we'll give Valerie Cruz and Grace Santiago their due time because we need to actually, we really need to do a, a discussion on her in a bit because girl got cheated out of this series. But yes, but Grace... Our, uh, lady, our, our lady of perpetual anesthesia is... Roma Mafia, I ever meet you, I am probably going to like bow gently and kiss your hand for, for giving giving life to this fucking role. Absolutely. And I love her Instagram is like nothing but her just taking screenshots of her laptop of things that she's typed up. Um, <laughs> it's just I such love a, that. Yeah, it's just a, it's such a Gen X thing to do. Uh, and Yeah, but there's very few people who can do it well. And I yeah. like to think that she's one of the few that does it well. I love that. Also, I was rewatching the call with Halle Berry and I noticed that she was in it. She plays her boss. And I, I love the fact that she's in that movie for no reason. <laughs> um, sometimes, hey, sometimes you just find an actor or an actress and you're just like, I just like the shit that you do. I don't care if it's good even. I just like you as an actor. Yes. I feel like Roma Mafia like, adds a lot to procedurals and i feel like that's kind of like her niche is procedurals absolutely all right so let's move on to we're going over to kimber next let's do kimber we (sighs) kelly carlson i know we've said this before first of all we need to say this again all of the women in this show are iconic in my opinion at this point like i have not met a character even dr grace I have not met a character that I have not liked that has been a female. This show is fucking filled with absolutely well-written female characters, in my personal opinion, who are complex, who are funny, who are different, who are interesting. And one of them that we get right at the very beginning is Kelly Carlson as fucking Kimber Henry. And Kimber is everything. She is stunningly gorgeous, first of all. She knows exactly what she's doing, and she never shies away from it. Yes, she is, unfortunately, in the first season, portrayed a little bit, at least on the latter half, as being kind of manipulated and semi-abused, which is terrible. We feel for you. But Kelly Carlson actually does so much justice to this role, not just by being absolutely drop-dead gorgeous, but by being kind of like like a little bit Marilyn Monroe, where it's like, yeah, she's playing a dumb girl, but she's an aware dumb girl. Does that make sense? Yeah. That's the thing is that Kimber was a, very much intended to be modeled off of uh, Kelly Carlson. We have exchanged some Instagram messages. I think you're fantastic. Um, you bring so much to this role. And I really, really love that Kimber is kind of like intended to be a one-time episode like character. She was supposed to be the Anya Jenkins of the show, a.k.a. if you're a big Buffy the Vampire Slayer fan, uh, <laughs> Emma Caulfield of the series. Oh, like she, Yeah, she, Kimber really, really is somebody that is a fascinating character study because she challenges the concept of beauty in so many ways uh, with her being so like outlandishly violent towards Christian in season one uh, and her kind of like being you know, somebody who's like, yeah, like, I fully embrace the fact that I am a girl who's conceived or perceived as a bimbo. But and she does it actively such... so clever. Yeah, she's it's, so yeah, it's clever. It's so fucking it. clever the way that she plays it off. And the thing, and not, not, to, not to make a joke at the expense, but she is very much that Lana Del Rey energy of, but I am fucking crazy and I am free. Like, that energy, but actually, like, a solid performance of that energy. Yeah, she Kelly just carries this role on her back, like without 
a question about it too and she makes it look so easy and effortless kelly carlson walked so um margot robbie could run let's just say that i feel like that's a fair uh kind of assumption um and i really really am excited for you to see where she goes in the rest of the series dude, i hope she gets fucking crazier yeah, she will. She will. But I, in seasons two and three, we hope she just gets progressively crazier as time goes on. <laughs> yeah, Kelly, you almost were my favorite act. Well, you were almost my favorite character in the show. I'm gonna be frank with you. Kimber is probably my number two. She is just somebody that you want to see succeed. And as the series progresses, you'll grow to love her more in seasons two and three. Bless. And then in seasons four and five, you're gonna look at her and just be like, "Why are you this person?" It ha- well, but it happens. Sometimes a writer falls off. Sometimes they don't know what to do with the character. Shit changes. Things happen. We yeah, do not she's... fault you, though. She's going to get a lot more complexity. Um, okay, moving on to Grace. Ugh, okay. First of all, as a character, this was totally a waste of space. And, I'm, and I have to say this in a way that... I fully acknowledge the, the separation of character and actor here. Let me explain that very clearly so that way I don't get anything from this. But Grace's character feels like it could have either been one of two things. They could have brought her in and had her been this one-off character for only season one like they did and it would have been fine. Personally, and you know I've discussed this with you, I, podcast listeners, you've probably heard this already a few times, she should have been written as a direct foil to Christian. She should have been in the office more. She should have been challenging Christian and more importantly, doing her fucking job to start. But she should have been utilized as this constant back and forth with Christian. Because to me, am I wrong in saying that it would have been interesting or it would have been even more fascinating if they had developed a relationship that was more like Tony Soprano and his therapist? Yeah, I agree with you. I think that Grace absolutely had a lot of potential to be that kind of character. Um, but they will end up like choosing between her and Liz. And if I had to pick between the two, I would rather have Roma Mafia. I'm going to be no, frank with fair. you. Yeah. And I think that, again, Valerie Cruz, like you're a fantastic actress. You have a ton of acting credits to your name. You're 100% like bona fide putting all the work. Like you do a lot with a little. Uh, and I feel so bad for you because Ryan Murphy didn't give you enough this season. And yeah. I have to just say it, Valerie Cruz, you have aged like wine. You really have. You look great. You still look great. You still get cast to play sexy young things. You should. And yeah, as you should. And I think that Grace uh, had so much potential to be a better character. Um, again, with like what she was doing in the office, I I can't tell you. She didn't do her job <laughs> once. And I love to see it. I like really... I said, she would just show up after everything had gone wrong. It's like, sis, what are you doing? You know what? If the series had continued her in the show, I would have really just loved to see her just hang out in the background no matter what. <laughs> I would have liked this. They would have treated her like a Bigfoot where she just walks in the background. She's not in the episode. She's just there. She's slightly out of focus eating uh, Christian's yo play. <laughs> Dr. Grace has become a meme of this podcast and I hope it never dies off because this it brings me an unreasonable amount of joy to realize how worthless a character was when I know that they were intended to be so much more. Yeah, okay, here's the thing. We're now going to make her the official meme of this podcast. Anytime that we want to put something, we're like, what would Grace do in the show? Yeah, what would... (laughs) Instead of what would Jesus do, we're going to have what would Grace do bracelets. (laughs) Honestly, yeah, we're going to do this. What would Grace do? Nothing. (laughs) She's she's the omniscient god. Yeah, she's the omniscient god by doing nothing. 
Oh, God. So that's going to be of... our meme of the show. Fucking <laughs> <laughs> speaking of characters who really did nothing. Jude. We're going on to Jude. God. Yeah. Jude really had nothing to offer the show other than temptation for Julia. Um, and I hate to say that because I really, really love the character of Jude. And he will get like more he'll get one more appearance I think in the series and it's not to say that like he's acted badly or that he's written badly it's just more so the fact that it's like did we need this reveal did we need this writers like I know the fact that like we needed him as temptation and kind of being foiled to Sean and uh him being like the sexy upcoming thing that catches Julia's eye but I again with like Grace I feel like there could have been more to this character like he I feel like he should have joined Grace's practice. I've already said this before. Our private practice spinoff is going to include him and uh, Grace. And I think that would have been a very, very fun character idea. I really, okay. All horniness aside, because y'all know I am just wet in, in the, the everything for this man in particular. I love me a mysterious ethnic, as has been described <laughs> in this fucking show, because we really don't know what the hell he is, really. We but, know that he's fake British. That's what we know. Yeah, he is. we know he's fake British. That's as far as it goes. Okay, but I'm sorry. His character should have been more of the sex fiend. He should have been a direct a direct foil to Sean, not this passing glance that Julia has in class. I think they started out on the right foot, where it's them developing a friendship and them trying to get together. But I really think it would have been more interesting had Julia had Julia fucked him. Yeah. She has the repertoire of doing things like that in the first place. And it's not to say that Julia is inherently a bad person, but imagine this, not to rewrite the series, but imagine that she finds out that Sean had an affair. Okay, cool, but no big deal. Cut to a black screen door opening and it's just Julia standing there and it's Jude and it cuts to them. It leaves it completely suspicious at the end of season one. Did they fuck? Did they not fuck? Nobody knows. But at least it would lend some agency and some depth to this character who is not an inherently badly written character. He was complex. He was fascinating. He was different. He even had a moment with Julia's frenemy, Suzanne. It it was an interesting character, but it feels like they were just overwhelmed with what to do with the cast that they had at the time. They were like, fuck, we can't write anything deeper for him because then we're going to have to give him a whole plot line. And it's like, that's fair, but you missed an opportunity here. Yeah, Philip Perez, who is the guy that plays him, I think is a fantastic actor and being eye candy, and it would have been fun to see him do more. But he will be able to guest um, in season two, so and also season three, turns out. Yeah, okay, so he'll be back. We will get him a little bit more. and I would love to get him. Yeah, we'll get him more than we get uh, Valerie Cruz, unfortunately. So I know, but you know what I meant. Yeah, I know what you meant. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. Early 2000s men were trash, and I, and then it explains everything about why I'm the way I am with men right now. But well, I digress. Moving on. Yes. So we go on from Jude to Gina. Ooh, girl, talk about a character that I cannot wait for season two for. Yeah, G- wait. Gina is just so fun throughout the entire series. She will be nothing but fun, and so camp, and she. You know, I don't want to give away too much at all. So I'm going to keep it on the real short end of just saying that she will get a pretty uh, pretty controversial topic, I feel like, for season two. So she's look gonna forward get, to that. She's going to get um, fucking hair extensions, and that's going to be the controversy. I wish that was true for her. I wish that was the worst thing that she was going to get. 
So I'm going to leave it at that. But I love Gina. I think that Gina is fantastic. I think that Jessalyn Gilsig just has, again, impeccable timing in terms of comedy. Uh, she plays her really sensitively in the moments that she needs to be done. And I just, I, I can't wait for her to join the cast later, the main cast in the series. So we have a lot to look forward to with Gina. I'm going to be the one to say it, but Jessalyn Gilsig plays an excellent bitch. Yes, she should have been in GCB. I feel like really, she should have killed really it in GCB. Truly. She should have, because even watching her in this, it's like, girl, you know how to play just you. She's so good at it. She's on the verge of being called a cunt. Let's put it that way. Yeah. And for those of you who don't know, yes. And for those of you who don't know who what GCB is, it was a short run show, um, I think produced by another writer director that did uh, a whole ass other series, but it's called Good Christian Bitches. And it's fantastic. I mean, she and Kristen Chenoweth, would have been so good in a cast together. I just put it out there. I think it would have been fantastic. There are some shows that need to be revived. GCB is one of them. GCB is probably one. (laughs) I feel like GCB in this day and age, especially in post-Trump America, would do surprisingly well. I agree. Um, So do you have anything else to say about Gina? I'm like I said, I'm very interested to see how it's going to progress for season two because Gina's character is introduced at such a late point in the series, but she works as such a good counterbalance to Christian and all of his bullshit because she calls him on it. Where Grace called him on it, but still managed to fall for his well, and really and truly, she fumbled. Where Grace fumbled, Gina feels like, yes, she fumbled, but Gina's willing to go back in and be like, okay, you push me down. I'm getting the fuck back up and I'm kicking you directly in the nards. Like, I want to know what the fuck's going to happen now. And yeah. that energy is obscenely addictive, especially when it comes to a female character. I love a character that is ready, willing, cocked, fully loaded, and leaning into just being like, I'm going to be a pain in your ass simply because I can. I love that. Yeah, and I'm going to put this out there because we have uh, just a few more female characters. Again, back to the like the feminist scope that this show has, like it really does have the range. Like it is a very postmodernist feminist lens. So, but if, and it does it so well because you have characters inhabiting every role of human experience. It seems. I mean, not every role, but a pretty wide array of what it means to be a woman. Where you're yeah. dealing with like sex addiction, you're dealing with being a working professional, you're working with being a woman going back to school or trying to reinvent themselves. You even or being rep- objectified. Yeah, yeah or like, being objectified. So and and it the show actually handles all of them really kind of well. And I'm and I'm again, y'all may disagree, but for the timing and for the content, what we're getting right now with it's where it's a show about plastic surgery, you're still getting a really complex, interesting set of women here who don't feel two-dimensional at all. They actually feel like, no, they have lives and they have dreams and hopes and ambitions that go beyond just the two centralized men of this series. Yes, I agree. And we're moving on to Meryl Boblet. I fucking hated this character so much. (laughs) I could not fucking stand his ass. I couldn't hate him for several reasons. Number one, you're balding. Let it go. It's not working. The hair is already, you have a fro and it's ugly and not taken care of and you're balding. Just let it go. Second of all, they've purposely dressed him poorly, which I love. I love that that was a stylistic choice where they're like, yeah, he's going to dress rich, but it's not going to be tailored at all. It's going to just be like off the rack. (laughs) 
Well, that's the thing. He's new money. He can't have all this like distinguished, like refined fashion about him. I think that Meryl is somebody that is a character who's kind of meant to be loathed for just the kind of like skeezy type of guy that he is. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I I really look forward to seeing where he's going to go in the rest of the series because he will come back. I've already mentioned this to you. So just be prepared for that. Uh, (laughs) Meryl reminds me of a a frat bro that wasn't a, how do I put this? He was accepted in the fraternity mostly because he had the grades and the money, but nobody really liked him. Exactly. Like they're like, (laughs) Oh fuck. He's coming to the event again. They're like, yeah. Uh, you know, I don't even know how to go on on about this character. I just could not stand this character the entire time. <laughs> That's fine because we only have a few more characters left. Let's go on to Megan. Uh, the Stallion. Megan O'Hara, unfortunately. I how do I put this? If ever I've wanted a character to actually extend their livelihood, their involvement with the show. Right now, it's sitting with Megan. Megan is such a good character. I 100% agree. I think that she would have been a really fascinating, like, addition to the cast. And if she was given more of a, like, you know, character arc, because she's only in the show for about three episodes and that's literally about a quarter of a series and or this this first season and i feel like she has like so much more to give and she like i don't know her actress again just does everything so well like there's nothing to complain about at all with the character of megan just being like you know just killing it and she's only gonna get one more guest appearance in the series so julia warner i just want you to know that or julie warner sorry we appreciate and love you on this podcast and we think that you have so much to offer both tv and movies continue acting always and if you ever want a guest on this podcast we are more than happy to have you julie you kind of i have to say this out of the entire series so far, out of this first season of like people that we've been introduced to, characters both on and off screen, I've never seen an actress like I like I said when her episode where she passes away, I've never seen an actress eat as hard as she fucking did that episode. She I've yeah, never seen she went before. all in to just being such a good actress. She put her whole pussy into that episode and you can fucking feel it yeah yeah and you know what she's she's done quite a bit of like tv film work and i would love to see her come back into like a being a real regular in a series i think she i think she would flourish in something that is not i don't want her to be in like a medical drama but like a drama of some kind maybe even like a horror drama like something like castle rock or something if that's still going on yeah why i just feel like she would flourish in something where it's a very subtle subtlety or like the the bly manor like type yeah, of like Netflix type like, of thing. yeah like a she bly just, manor she has the range okay she, somebody cast her oh god give her a season of fucking um the, uh, the haunting of and make her the main character not the mother don't make her the fucking mother make her like the new wife moving into an old house and have her be that like distressed woman in this house I would eat that shit up. Yes. And she would eat too. You know she would eat. Oh, 100%. Sorry, we're just going to talk about Julie Warner for the rest. This is a Julie Warner podcast. <laughs> we stand I, you, Julie I Warner, so hard. I fucking stand you. You are so talented. And it makes me so mad that you don't have more roles right now. We love the talent, okay? The flavor was there. Uh, Moving on to Sophia. Okay. 
we're gonna say this. I'm gonna say this at least. Go Robert, ahead. you can agree to disagree or whatever. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say this. The actor portraying Sophia is not queer, nor are they trans, as far as I have understood so far. However, that does not mean that they did not do an incredibly good job at portraying a single glimpse into the trans experience. Yes, and I'm going to put this out there too. John DeArco, like, we understand that you are not queer, but you really did bring so much to this character. And in terms of, like, representation of what we're going to get in Niptuck, it's going to be kind of a mixed bag. But I really, really, really think it's important to acknowledge the fact that, like, the care that went into writing this character into making her a fully realized, like, three-dimensional person. Um, I would have loved to have, again, had John DeLarco, like, join the cast of Niptuck. I think Sophia would have been a great character to see all the way through. Um, I agree. Yeah, she's going to be a season one-only character, so I'm really sad about that. Uh, Because I think that Sophia, again, is something that we didn't get in terms of representation at all during the early 2000s. And if it was, it was not in the character respect that we get now with shows like Pose or uh, Legendary or Orange is the New Black, where we get to see like a real trans character like be humanized. And this is something I want to commend Ryan Murphy on. Always representing the trans community in a very positive light and being the- able to give them humanity. Absolutely. And the fact that Sophia's character is only a season, she's a season one exclusive is a little disheartening because at a time when you had such anti-gay rhetoric going on in the country, I I was old enough to be aware of this at the time. I mean, granted there's only like a handful of years between myself and Robert to have a character be on television. Number one. Yes. They were portrayed by what we can only see as of right now as a cishet man. But to have a character be on television and be portrayed in a really sympathetic light, in a really humanizing light, like you said, and to be taken seriously, to be taken seriously, to not be seen as a joke, to not be seen as a punchline, to not be seen as a one-off, to be seen as a fully developed, complex character on a tele- on a major television show, on a major network at the time, that was shocking. That was so shocking. And the character that you have and the beginning of what could have been, I would have loved to have kept Sophia on just for her to be friends with Julia. Just yes. for that. Nothing more, nothing less. Just to be, again, our holy trinity of Julia, uh, Sophia, and Liz, I think would have been perfect. God, and, that would have been yeah, so good. That's the, girl, that's the gal pals we need in this show. Um, but I really, really do want to say again one more time that we appreciate so much that Jonathan Del Arco, like you came through so hard with being a good representation of this character. And not to say that yeah. she is a punchline. She had so many good, funny moments too. She did, but she but the thing is, is you had you actually that's the thing. It was complex. They actually made her complex. They gave this character a, a funny side and a serious side, and they made her sympathetic and they made her warm and friendly. But they also kind of made her sexy, too, because she was confident at, about it. Yeah, and, and we didn't get to see a, a cis and lesbian trans relationship kind of exist, you know? And that was... it was dealt seriously. That's the thing. It was taken actually seriously for a few minutes. Yeah. Okay, now let's wrap up <sighs> this character list with Escobar. Ugh. 
God. Moving from characters that we love to characters that we want to ride into the sunset. (laughs) Poppy Chulo Escobar. Oh my God. This man. Girl. Yeah. We love you so freaking much. Robert Lissardo. Robert Lissardo, if we could have you on this podcast, I think we would have a full 15 minutes of us just screaming and gagging over the fact that we have you on the podcast. But we would also really like... I, I know for myself, I truthfully would like to know when you were reading table reading for this character, what was going through your mind? Not because of any anything else. I mean, yes, it is a little bit of a stereotype, but hey, it happens. But I would genuinely just like to know what you were thinking about this character. What was your thought process in bringing this character to the table? Especially someone who is incredibly cruel. Yeah. Suavely, too, as a pachuco. Like, you really do, like, have this, like, badass, like, like scene stealing scene grabbing energy and you know i think that robert lucerto was just such a cool person too like behind the scenes because he's just somebody that you don't get a lot of um although he does appear in a lot of things he has a lot of credits uh yeah he, he does i'm on his page right now and i'm looking it's like homeboy's busy <laughs> yeah he has stayed blessed and booked uh, but he, you know, he's a really interesting person because he used to be in the U.S. Marines. And, you know, him being the person that he is where he's going to be a primary antagonist in the series that will come back. Uh, I, I really just want to say, like, I think that you're fascinating and we would love to have you on this pod and just talk to you about anything that you would like to talk about. Especially for the fact that looking at, I, I'm just going to, I'm going to extend it beyond Nip Tuck. Looking at the list of credits that you have, you are probably one of the more well-decorated actors from this show so far, as far as I can see. No shade, no tea to anybody else on this on this pod on this show, but homie's busy. I respect a working man. Yeah, Sorry, and he's published too. We love a published man. He's published. Yeah, he's got three books out. Oh my, Robert Lasardo, I'm asking very respectfully for your hand in marriage at this point. You're working. You're published, and I am ready and willing to talk to you. Yeah, we would love to have you. Please come on our podcast. Okay, so now that we're done wrapping up all of our characters, I want to ask you what your favorite episode was this uh, season. My and why episode? Yes. Uh, okay, let me give me give me a hot second because I I have I'm caught between two. I'm caught well, between two. It doesn't have to be one. It could be two. I know. And I'm going to say this truthfully. I'm caught between our poorly or well, aptly named sad episode of Nanette Babcock and the follow-up episode to that, which is Sophia Lopez episodes three and four. And and I'm going to explain very briefly why, like, I know you're going to ask me to explain why, but could you imagine if I was just like, and that's it. Okay. Good night. (laughs) (laughs) Please. I would love to hear what your thoughts are. Not that we haven't for a couple hours, but go ahead. (laughs) Not like we can't you shut the fuck up in the first place. No, it's fine. (laughs) I'm going to say, I'm going to start with actually Sophia Lopez and work to Nanette Babcock. I'm going to start on a high note and then a low note and we'll go from there. Okay. The Sophia Lopez episode is one of my favorites for one reason and one reason only. Representation. We finally have the show takes off on a high note and it does a damn good job of actually presenting a tiny glimpse of trans experience. And it does a fairly good job of handling going through the process of gender reassignment surgery the process of getting things discussed with doctors getting to the point where you see notice certain things that you're not content with or make you feel uncomfortable in your body gender dysmorphia and 
of body dysmorphia are very real experiences that people have. I know I'm one of them. And to see it discussed and to see a character, again, do it in a way that was confident, that was self-assured, and really and truly, even when it was resisted, Sophia presses back and is like, no, I know what I want, I know what I need, and I know that you're the best. That's why I'm here. And also to see her later have her moment where her friend I, is this. I think this is the episode where her friend they have where he has to operate on her. Yes, that, yes, that's true. At that scene in particular, out of all out of the entire se- season, that scene has stuck with me as probably one of the most uncomfortable moments of the entire series for one reason and one reason alone. We have to remember that. Even in this modern age, even now in 2022, being gay, being queer, being trans, being anything that's part of the alphabet mafia, which I hate, but I'm going to use it because it's kind of fun. It's still a crime. Us going and getting medical treatment and getting gender reassignment surgery and getting things that are more life affirming care or, or, or practices unfortunately today are still seen as crimes in a country that has legalized gay marriage. Yeah. And that's the thing is that we're still fighting for these things. Um, And I want to say that my favorite episodes too are probably Sofia Lopez parts one and two, along with Nanette Babcock as well. So I'm going to put that out there now. Oh, see, perfect. We're going to work together on this. Yeah. I think that Sofia Lopez episode one brings so much to the show that is the message of the show that plastic surgery is not just to make people beautiful, but it does have like a purpose in society that can do something so much grander for the human soul and condition. And I think that this episode in particular does a good job of like humanizing every character in it so much more. And it's just, it shows what the writers can do and what the characters can do. It, it also lends itself, like you said about, plastic surgery having a purpose it's one of the few times and i don't know if this show is going to do it as the season as the series progresses but it's one of the few times that when you're talking about plastic surgery which at the time especially early 2000s was seen as so superficial it was seen as such a vapid thing to do like oh i'm gonna get botox or i'm gonna get lipo it was seen as something so Hollywood, California, so Miami, so New York, so upper echelon, so rich. It's a very classist thing that was experienced in the early 2000s lens. Absolutely. It was absolutely something that was ridiculed if you had plastic surgery. But to see it be turned on its head and to be used as something that is actually a tool for someone to find more validation in themselves and in their existence as a person is so genius. It and is. to do it early, too, to do it early in the series, I wish and I hope and I pray that there are more episodes like this. Oh, we will have genius. In terms of writing quality, absolutely. In terms of, like, what it will do for this character, no, unfortunately. We love you, Sophia, but you won't come back. We miss you. We miss you dearly. Um, I want to just quickly touch on the Sophia Lopez part two. I think that that episode is fantastic for the reasons that we get so much representation again from Jonathan Dalarico appearing on our screens, but also talking with Liz, uh, getting to be a fully fledged character finally in the series. Um, I think that Sophia Lopez part two also really does a good job with the assisted suicide of Megan. Um, and it's just, it's so enthralling. It carries the show 
And it again, just shows like the moral questions of what happens to people like this. Uh, actually that might be a dull coffin, but it, it, you know, we love this series so much. And I think Sofia Lopez episode two is fantastic as well. Um, moving on to Nina Babcock. Ooh. So first of all, we're still going to be of the mindset justice for Barb, justice for Nanette Babcock. But I remember having a point for this episode that I didn't get to discuss when we when we actually did the recording of it is that the sequence between Christian and Mrs. Grubman in that episode if I'm not mistaken, that's what it is, right? Yeah, it's that episode where uh, Mrs. Grubman first appears and she kind of, like, threatens to sue because we, of the uh, the uh, instrument left in her. We love that, first of all. Yeah. But we... That moment at the end of, of when Christian is being treated as nothing more than a boy toy... Mrs. Grubman is wearing that absolutely glamorous fucking green dress, which I love to this day. Green is, that a, was a, is a hard color to pull off, ladies. That was a chartreuse negligee. That was opulence perfected. It was so good, though. And it was so time-locked to a character that is so out of time. And I love that. I, I fucking love it. But what I'm getting at is that entire sequence... And I and I'm gonna get personal. I'm gonna be. Are we gonna be vulnerable at the gig? Yes, we are. That sequence rings true for a lot of queer people, and I'm going to. I'm going to speak for myself, but speak for others as well. Is that sometimes in life you don't need to be fucked. You don't need any of that, really and truly. But sometimes you just need someone to hold you and tell you everything's gonna be okay. That's fair. That's really fair. And you know what? Go yeah. on. Go ahead. Say it. I I really love Nanette Babcock again for the purposes that have the character of Nanette Babcock symbolizing the stigma against like mental health um, and being such a, a really well acted character. I really wish the actress who played her, we got to see her in more things too. I think she's fantastic. Um, but I think it also touches on the importance that Nip Tuck has as well in terms of like talking about subjects that are uncomfortable like mental health and ageism and the loneliness that comes in aging as well. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's just nuanced and genius writing and acting. And it really makes season one worth talking about. And don't worry, I was going to get to that. I just had to get the joke out at the very beginning and then get into the actual meat of it. Because you're absolutely right, is that the show does a fascinating, this episode in particular does a really fascinating job of looking at the duality of womanhood in particular. It sure does. Because on one end, you have Nanette, who is very clearly mentally unwell, and but very clearly looking for a sense of validation from people who she feels can only, only one person can give her that validation. And it's unfortunate, and it's, it's painful, because people, people go through this, people experience that, where they feel hurt, and they feel damaged by that. But then at the same time, you have Mrs. Grubman, who is aged she she's in her she's in her later years of her life she's experiencing loneliness she's lost her husband and the sexism and the ageism that comes along with that is that you're suddenly not seen as desirable or attractive anymore and the nuance of women in hollywood as well is that there is no place for a woman over 40 in hollywood and to have these actors 
portray these roles and to really kind of lean into these moments of writing where it's like, yeah, we're going to talk about the fact that, you know what, you don't treat women good. Flat out. A to B, you don't. You yeah. don't treat women with respect once they've hit their, their post-prime, so to speak. But you can let any fucking male actor age like fucking milk and he's still seen as a viable construct of an actor. It's like nobody wants to see Clint Eastwood in anything anymore. He was talking to a chair less than three years ago, folks. That's true. Okay, so moving on to Ugh. who is your favorite patient? My favorite patient. Oh, AKA God. who's your favorite guest star who got an episode centered around them. <laughs> oh, just cut to the meat of it, right? Don't you? Yeah. Oh my, I love the fact, I, we, I hope to God we talk about our least favorite episode because I already know exactly where it's going to be sitting. Oh, I know. Go ahead. I, I'm going to be really basic and I'm just going to say Sophia Lopez. That's fair. She um, shines. This, I'm sorry. The character shines this series, this season. I mean, series is accurate if you're in, if you're in the UK, but she shines. She's a damn fine character. We've basically sat here and sang her praises for the last 45 minutes to an hour now. Like, what more can we say about the bitch? Yeah, we love you, Sophia Lopez. Um, I'd say it's tied between her and probably Megan, because I feel like Megan O'Hara is somebody that, like, we just need more of in our show. We just need more. We do. Okay. Uh, what do you think was the most interesting surgery covered in season one? The most interesting surgery covered personally... I mean, I know I ridiculed the man to death over this, but I the most interesting surgery covered was the fact that they were literally trafficking drugs through women's breasts. <laughs> I was going to say that's probably my actual pick too. <laughs> so it's so anti-economical. Yeah, that or probably fixing Matt's circumcision. I feel like in season one, I think is a pretty fun one to like talk about, but I don't I think it's the, that interesting on paper, you know? I love the fact that we forget that Matt tried to circumcise himself at this point. Yeah, I mean, again, a serious monster to forget these things. Oh, God, John Hensley. I love the fact that they were... I'm sorry, I, I gotta take a moment and talk about the production notes. Now, what we're gonna do is we're gonna get John Hensley basically nude, drinking out of a bottle of, like... um manishize it yeah heated <laughs> cuticle scissors and, and the thing is his penis yeah jonathan i love that you have like a no nudity clause too like john hensley does not have any nude scenes in the series again it's huge loss for us huge um, i'm just saying john hensley i would still to this day eat your ass if the opportunity arose just throwing that out there we're going to interview you and we're going to bring that up to you at some point. Okay. Um, <laughs> you're going to, we're going to interview John Hensley and you're going to fully throw me under the bus. Oh yeah. Because I'm going to throw myself under the bus on the same thing, but it's okay. Uh, so let's just put it out there. What was your least favorite episode? I want to know because it's not on our notes. My least favorite episode. Do I really even have to say it? Go was ahead. fucking Kurt Dempsey. Kurt Dempsey was by far the worst episode of the that series. That so fucking far. episode should not exist, period. A to B, period. It should not exist, or at least the incredibly xenophobic, racist scenes that they have should not exist. Someone went to the makeup department that day and told them to put Asian eyes on someone. Let's establish that for a second. I didn't know this was fucking Mickey Rooney in Breakfast at Tiffany's. Yeah, and here's my thing, too, is that I'm also going to throw out uh, Montana Sassy Justice as probably one of my favorite, or one of my least favorite episodes this season, too. I just think that it serves no real purpose to furthering the plot outside of, you know, the side plots. 
Um, I don't really care for the DID representation that we got either. So there's that. Yeah, that was that episode. Let's put it this way. The episode did what it was supposed to function to do, but you should have just cast Tony Collette. Agreed. I'm going to skip ahead to a couple questions and say, what was your favorite operation song? Oh my God. I don't even remember what my favorite operation song. Actually, no, I will. I, I, I can't remember exactly whose it was. I think it's Megan's when they're doing her breasts and the fact that they chose to do classical music as yes, opposed the Disney to music slow. Yes. I love that because it's a very stark choice in how they portray or want to portray Megan O'Hara as a character. That was so intentional and so heavy handed, but honestly it was a good choice. I'm going to say sunglasses at night for me because it's just one of my favorite songs. I have to put it out there. It's okay, honey. We know you like to do coke in your car before going to the club. <laughs> it's okay. We support you. Oh, my God. Okay. So let me ask you this. Is there a standout moment for you in the series so far? Um, Actually, there is. And I'm going to have to say my favorite standout moment. And the one that really, it's something that I, I don't think people expect. But it is the post-funeral discussion of Julia and Sean. Okay. That's a good flex. It's, but let me explain. It's a buildup. This season is a buildup to literally that moment. And I will fight anyone who tells me different. You have these two characters who have very clearly been on the rocks with each other for a long time now. Julia's trying to get her shit together. Sean's trying to do something different. Sean ends up having an affair. The person in the affair dies. They kill themselves. And Julia makes a very valid point of she can't even be mad at Megan. She can't because Megan's dead and Megan died of cancer. It is such a conflicting moment of a couple having to come to terms with the fact that number one, they're unhappy with each other. Number two, they're reconciling the fact that one of them had an affair. And number three, they're having to reconcile the fact that they're having an affair with a person who died of cancer. You can't be mad at that. How do you you navigate (laughs) that conversation? We're just going to go out for Chinese tonight and talk about these three things together. No, it's not how that works. It's It's a pretty interesting... It's my favorite moment so far. Yeah, it's a pretty good moment. Um, I'm going to have to say for me... Probably the awkward coming out scene between Sophia, or not Sophia, I'm going to say... Um, Vanessa? Yeah, Vanessa, Ridley, and Matt. That threesome conversation, I feel like, you know, Kate Mara getting to shine in the moments that she does, and for Sophia Bush to be there in the background kind of being, like, the antagonist, I think is really interesting. Um, I think it's really nuanced conversation, again, about coming out in 2003 and what it meant. Um, and I'm going to put this out there, too. I think that a good one is probably Christian being comforted by Sean and Julia when he finds out that the baby is not his, but he's saying that he wants to be the father. I think that's a really beautiful moment. Yeah. Chosen family, y'all. Absolutely. I think the, I'll toss one out then. Another one that was in the back of my mind, because I, I think it's underrated, mm-hmm. at least, is Christian in church kind of low-key confessing to oh, Sean yeah. about him actually being abused. And yeah. I know, I know that you've you've hinted at the fact that that's going to be discussed at at more more in depth as the series goes on. But mm-hmm. to have that be the introduction to Christian's quote unquote tragic backstory, and to have it be really uncomfortable, like really uncomfortable for both character and audience, is a damn fine way to portray a scene. That's how you do. That's how you do trauma. You never want to make it comfortable. You make it uncomfortable for everybody involved. Okay, and we're going to move on to 
what do you think will happen next season? Because I want to know that. I think my current speculations kind of sit in one one little area right now. Mm-hmm. I want to see how Sean and Julia are going to survive, if they're going to survive, or how they're going to progress. I want to know the... I really want to know what, what Christian is going to do with Gina. Because that feels like a relationship that would be very chaotic and very tumultuous. But it feels like if they were to actively put aside their differences, they could work out in some weird way. But this is Ryan Murphy we're talking about, and nothing is ever A to B for him. So that could be a whole other thing. I think it, I think Matt is, like you said, Matt's going to progress more and more into the demon spawn that we all know and love him to be. So we're going to have to see how that fucking works out, too. And apparently Annie's going to be a part of the show. Yeah, Annie's going to be a part of the show. And I really look forward to seeing her actress being able to be a shining representation of a young teenage girl in the early 2000s, which let's just say they're not going to be a positive portrayal. I hope it involves a lot of drugs and dick. Oh, God, no. But we will get there. Um... <laughs> Okay, so now that we have that all covered, I want to know who would you recast the season's actors with if you had to choose them and why? Let's see. Let's do a lightning round of these because we're going on over almost two hours. So, Are we? Jesus. Yeah, we've we've covered a lot. Oh my god, we are at an hour and a half already. Holy shit. Uh, Real quick, I think Dylan Walsh has to stay as Sean. I can't think of literally anybody else who would play him. Especially in TV at this point. Yeah, that's fair. I feel like uh, Michael C. Hall would be the only alternate choice. But, I mean, they're basically the same person. I mean, literally. Um, I think if we were to recast Christian, I would truthfully want someone who is, quote-unquote, ethnic of some kind. Whether he be Black, whether he be Latinx, whether he be Asian. I just feel like he'd be more... Honestly, you know what? I'm going to throw this out there. B.D. Wong, two, early 2000s B.D. Wong from, from SVU when it was first getting off the ground. He was young enough, he was thin enough, he was hot enough, and he, was, he would have been fascinating in this role. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to counter you and I'm going to throw out a really weird flex that I feel like Jamie Foxx would have done a really good job as the role of Christian. I'm laughing because all I can think of him is bringing Ray Charles into this fucking show for some reason. I'm sorry. Well, here's the thing. Jamie Foxx in the early 2000s was a completely different actor outside of Ray. That's Um, very true. He had a really good range, and I feel like he could have carried a really good dramatic role like Christian. You know what? The more that I think about it, the more it actually makes sense, and it would have been interesting to see him and Dylan Walsh. Him and Dylan Walsh playing off of each other would have been interesting because you have two very different energies actually for the first time instead of them being like friends it feels like they'd be more like frenemies yeah and i feel like because of how handsome that uh jamie is too i think he would have done really well on the show too oh absolutely yeah if not him Uh, then maybe tay diggs i feel like tay diggs would do good as him too i think tay yeah i mean i don't we we could stop right there tay diggs in and in anything at this point that man is gorgeous yeah. Okay. Moving on to who we would cast as Julia. I think that Jolie is pretty. You can't. You can't change her. Jolie is so strong in this role. It's hard to imagine another actress taking it over. I think the, the only f- other person I can think of outside of Jolie, maybe, uh, maybe Julie Benz. I think Julie Benz could have added to this because I mean we're sticking with the theme of Dexter, and I feel like she and Michael Hall uh, have a great chemistry. 
there's only there's two in my mind for Julia, and one of them I have to look up. But the first one I know for a fact is um would would have been Tony Collette. Okay. Because Tony Collette to me had some of the how do I put it? Tony Collette has the range. She's an underrated actress in the first place. And I think the only reason people are starting to realize her as an actual like force of acting is because of fucking hereditary. But I remember watching Tony Collette in United States of Terra and in other little side projects that she had going on at the time. She's so fucking good. Yeah, I think she could have killed this role. I bet she didn't kill any role. She's literally able to play anybody. I'm I mean, let's be real. I'm trying to find the other actress who I'm trying to think of right now. She's in a bunch of shit, but I cannot remember her name for the life of me. So just give me one. Judy Greer. Judy Greer would kill. Judy fucking Greer would be so good as That's Julia. Fair. That's fair. I, I, I would give you that. I think Julie I think Judy Greer would play her as a little bit more like a um like a vodka version I, of Julia. <laughs> yeah. Where it's not as subtle, but it's a little bit more, like, aggressive. Like, she's like, I'm sick of your shit, Sean. Like, I love that. And I'm so here for it. Okay, let's go into Matt. Mm, John Hensley kind of fits this role a little too well. The only actor I can think of that I really would have loved to see play this role was probably Sean Pyform, the actor who plays Andrew from Desperate Housewives. I feel like that would be such a fun role for him. I mean... I really want to see him work more, too. So, I mean, hey, that's what I'm going to throw out there. No, that's fair. If you find someone who... See, and that's the thing is the car- the one actor that I'm thinking of is older than what this role would be, so I'm I'm immediately excluding him specifically because of age. Okay. But, yeah. Well, we're going to stick to the main cast, and I'm just going to add on Liz. Do you want to recast Liz in any way? Absolutely not. Yeah, we're not going to touch you, Liz. You're perfect. Roma Mafia. Roma Mafia would have to stay. Um, I think even... Kelly Carlson as Kimber has to stay. I can't imagine anyone else playing Kimber at this point. Yeah, everything else is perfect. So, okay, we're going to go on to uh, final thoughts on Grace and what we would do with her spinoff. Oh, my God. First of all, my final thoughts on Grace is this. It, again, like I mentioned earlier, when we were talking about her character individually. It just feels like Grace was an add-in at the last minute that they didn't know what to do with. If... Yes. If Grace had a spinoff series where it was like, not for nothing, we'll just call it private practice or something like that, or like Falling from Grace or some shit like that. It has to be called Falling from Grace. Oh my god. It would, you know what, thinking about it, it would be fascinating to have her, to have her leave the show, and the first season of Falling from Grace is her literally trying to rebuild her life after McNamara Troy. Yeah, because I feel like it would just have broken her down psychologically and it'd be her piecing herself together. Like, like I can already imagine the first episode is like her walking down the beach in Miami in the 2000s. Like, oh, my life is so boring. I don't know what to do. Like, I've been fucked by like this. And like, just talking to herself. And then she like gets an idea for like a new practice where she's going to help people before plastic surgery and actually do her fucking job. But we're not going to talk about that for a minute. I think it would be interesting to see her away from doing anything with plastic surgery. I think it'd be really interesting to see her just cover, like, the the entirety of, like, what the DSM covers for, like, psychological health. And the thing is, she plays her actress. I can't remember her name. I thought my head right now. Valerie Cruz. Valerie Cruz plays such a good medical professional that I would be... I would be in the wrong to say that I wouldn't want to see her play something akin to Grey's Anatomy or ER yeah. 
or something like that, but not where it says high intensity, where it's more slow pace, slow burn, like a little bit on the edge of like, um, oh, what the fuck is the show? It's with, um, it's not How to Get Away with Murder. What's the fuck the other one that is the other one? The one scandal. with Carrie Washington? Yeah, Scandal. Yeah. Something akin to Scandal, but very, like I said, a very slow paced drama, maybe even something like Glenn Close was in when she did Damages. Yes, I think that she would do really good as that. Because Grace's character is so meticulous and slow-paced in the first place and doesn't have a lot of emotional outbursts as far as we can tell, except when she's confronted. It would be fascinating to see her play like a, a really intense drama. I really would have liked to see what she... What was meant for that scene where she walks away from Christian in the bedroom and what would have been going on in her mind. Like, I think that Grace, again, is a really, really fascinating character because... She isn't given much to do, but she offers so much in terms of, like, sass, personality, character traits, stuff that's, like, outside of, like, what we can put onto her, you know? Agreed. A a fucking greed. Yeah. She is a Cheshire Cat, and I would really love to see her be more of a character outside of this series of Nip Tuck. I think that she had so much more to offer um, in terms of her private practice show. I would have loved to see her be in a place that's not Miami. I would have liked to see her maybe in like New York or maybe in Fort Lauderdale or Daytona. New York, New Jersey. <laughs> Can you imagine? I wanted to be in Kansas City. <laughs> oh my god, could we please just write her in Kansas City and it's just, just... called Falling from Grace? Call it's it Falling like from Grace, have her be the exact same character. No, okay, just what was... Oh what was the show that wasn't Nashville that was like it was Heart of Dixie? Heart of Dixie. Heart of Dixie. The show no, not Heart of Fucking Dixie. We're not ending on Heart of Dixie. I would have loved for it to have been Heart of Dixie. So, oh my god, <laughs> could you imagine a psychology show called Heart of Dixie? It's just about Grace, and it's her falling from Grace. It's 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 her it's her counseling fucking out of work musicians. I would have lived for this. <laughs> this is the show that we need. FX, give us writing credits. Let's go. I would have loved we'll to see it so. Show for free. It would have been so camp. I would have lived. I mean, bitches leaving like Lanyard's level of camp. Where she's uh, sitting there trying to talk to someone really seriously, and the person just responds like, "Well, I just don't know about what's going to happen to me." And she's just like, "I'm a sp-. She's just like, "Everyone's going to like fetishize her and make her a spicy Latina." She's like, "I'm not here for this." I loved. It. I would love the fact that one day she goes to Dollywood. I, that's gonna be the whole Dr. Christmas Drake episode. Goes to Dollywood for a special episode. That's the Christmas has, episode. She meets Dolly Parton as like the angel of God or some shit, like she did in, uh, in the fucking Christmas on the Square. Truthfully, okay, let's wrap up this with our final thoughts on the season. Uh, well, ladies and gentlemen, and non-binary folks, we're here. We're queer, and we did season one. Yeah, you guys got an hour and a half out of us, and we're going on, so. My personal best is 32 hours. Yeah. All right, so final thoughts? My final thought is that I like where the show is headed right now. I can't wait to see what season two has to bring. Oh, God. preemptively say that because this episode is so long, we're probably going to take an extra week off to recollect and start our thought process on season two. I nevertheless, we're excited. I'm excited. Yeah. I'm very, I'm, I'm titillated to say the least. We, yeah, that's fine. I think that's a fair thing to do to ourselves. We're going to take one week off, everybody. I'm sorry if you to find out this way. Um, but we will be back in season two. I do want to throw this out there right now, too. I do have um, a fellow fan that I've reached out to on Instagram who would love to guest on the show. So we will have a guest episode um, somewhere in season two. I told them that they can pick whatever episode they want. So they do have some time. Yay, um, we love having friends. Yes, we have a friend who I think is from France. So, Ooh, fancy. Yeah, we're going to have an international guest. 
I hope they come on here and tell me how un-American I am. That's all I ask. <laughs> I hope so too. I hope tell so. me I'm worth we'll in a different language for once. I would love for this to be a thing. Um, <laughs> I love season one. It's not my favorite season of the series. I think that season two and season three are going to breathe in a lot more life. Um, I feel like season three is my favorite season of the series. I will say it time and time and time again. Season three is going to be uh, highly problematic, but it is just fun TV. It is so much fun TV, and it gives you so much to talk about. And season four, I feel like, is the, like, where it should have ended series, or season, should I say, because it's just, it ends so strongly. And... Yeah, we're going to get two more seasons after that, and they're going to be fun. Well, It's where the show becomes pure camp. I mean, this show already is leaning kind of hard into camp as it is, but it's like towing the line with camp where it's like, I don't want to do it, but it's like, you're going to have to at some point. Yeah. So in two weeks, we're going to be back with season two. Uh, Until then, you can follow us on our Instagram and our Twitter at NipTalkedPod. You can also find me at A Street Cat Named Desire. And you can find me at Art Like Work Of on both Twitter and Instagram, where I will be fielding any and all requests to talk more in depth about shit that doesn't really matter. That's true. I will too. And we also have a Gmail account if you guys want to submit any questions to us. So that way, when we do our season two wrap up, we have some things to answer yeah. that are not written from us. Send uh, us stuff, please and thank you. It, help- it yeah. helps us make more interesting content. And it helps the content not feel so, like, one-sided. Because, really and truly, this show is a show that needs to be talked about. Oh, absolutely. And we're going to get more, I feel like, as the show goes on. We'll get more subscribers, more listeners. Because, again, I feel like the show will come back and resurge. Um, because all things early 2000s are coming back right now. Absolutely. But until then, we are Nip Talk. Uh, tell us what you don't like about ourselves. Please, tell yes, us. Yes, leave us a review. Subscribe. Rate, review, subscribe. Yes, all those things. And remember... Money can buy you happiness, especially in the form of plastic surgery. That's correct. All right. Bye. Bye.